Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Giblets Gazette. My name's Ross Solly, with me, Julian Abbott. Hello Julian, how's it going? Uh, very well, thank you, Ross. Good to catch up, and uh, I think this is episode number five, so going great guns at the moment. And we've got a very special guest today, uh, considered by many considered by many to be uh, the voice of Australian jazz, certainly one of the great icons of the Australian jazz movement, has been for, well, I don't know that he'd want me to say, but certainly for, for several decades. Uh, and um, he's become a household name, especially amongst jazz enthusiasts. Vince Jones, welcome to the Giblet. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys, on the show. Uh, Vince, we've got, we've got so many things to talk about, but I, I feel it would be remiss of us not to mention the passing uh, of Tina Turner, who is one of the great voices of of, of international music and such an inter interesting, fascinating, sad, uh, but in many ways fulfilling career. Yeah, she had a massive career, didn't she? And she was, uh, she always looked happy. Uh, I think she was Sagittarian, actually. She was a great dancer <laughs> and a good big belter voice. You know, she could really belt out a song. I think she, um, yeah, what a loss, but I, we're nearing the end of a lot of that, those 60s and 70s soul singers. Mm, mm. There'll be quite a few of them pass away in the next few years. Well, you know, her early music with her previous husband, who wasn't a very nice character as we we all know, Vince, but, you know, just, just the, the, the blues, you know, that came from that into rock and roll and, and then, you know, reinventing herself in the 80s there and getting Roger Davies, the Australian, as a manager. And then, you know, we all know her association with rugby league and simply the best. She was able to able to sort of, you know, transverse across uh, sort of different genres, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, if there is an art form America has, it would have to be black music. Um, I would suggest that jazz and and then soul music were actually um, art forms. And she was clearly part of that, yeah. Now, that you talk about uh, American black musicians and, and black artists and Vince. That, that it's a famous story that, that uh, you fell in love with jazz when you heard uh, a Miles Davis record. Now, this, this was at a time in the 60s when I'm sure most of your, contempt, most of your schoolmates, they would have been in love with the Beatles and in love with the Rolling Stones and all that sort of stuff. And, and you've decided to go down the, the jazz path. How did that happen? It's funny, isn't it? Like I would take an album of Miles's to a party and they'd all be listening to Led Zeppelin. And <laughs> I'd put uh, Bitches Brew or one of those late Miles albums on and everyone would go, who brought this idiot? <laughs> but I loved it. I, I just, it hit me. You know, hit the spot for me. I, I love the feeling, the rhythm and the feel of black music. It's it's very exciting. Yeah. Were you ever into the Beatles or the Stones or, or or Zeppelin? Well, my dad wouldn't let us play it in the house, but of course, around at our friends' place, we're all Beatles fans. Um, they had a very special place in everyone's heart. The Beatles, a Zeppelin. Yeah, I, I did. I liked them. My favourites were. Uh, possibly the more jazz-orientated ones. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and so can I just take you back a step there? You said your dad wouldn't let you play it. Did you think it would be a bad influence on you or, or like a lot of parents during the 60s, they were worried what the uh, ulterior motive of some of these Beatles songs was all about? It was funny, you know, I, 
my daughters are listening to rap and oh, I think there should be a C in front of that music. <laughs> what they're singing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, along to the lyrics too. But that, you know, maybe I'm just the counterpart of my father. He, he played classical music, jazz music. And he's none of that devil's music in the house. You know, none of the rock and roll. Yeah. So maybe it's just an old fogey on the way. So were they surprised when you you had, you know, jazz records and not Beatles records and things like that, even though they weren't allowed in the house? Well, we were allowed to bring a record to the art class. We had an American art teacher who was a really hip young guy. And he said, bring your music in. What would you what'd you like, man? We'll paint to it, you know. And I brought uh, In a Silent Way by Miles Davis um, and they all kind of had that sort of frown on their head, you know, when they started listening to it. Well, they were all listening to, uh, you know, Jethro Tull and various other, which I really enjoyed too. But, um, yes, it was – I was a strange kid. <laughs> were, you, were you teased? Uh, you, I, I learned how to get through all that stuff, yeah. Yeah? They, I think they recognised that I had something like – They'd follow me, the kids, funnily enough, to school, and I would be singing on my way to school, and they'd sort of be a few metres behind me, silently listening to the songs that I would be singing, which are uh, mostly Joe Cocker-type songs and Ray Charles stuff, you know. So they were falling under the uh, they were falling under the trance that jazz music so often brings us, Vince. Uh, uh, it is it can be it can do that to you. I, I saw you playing, I think it was at a York at the York Jazz Festival in Western Australia uh, oh, decades ago, and I just remember looking around the room at the time and the hold that you had over the room at the time, it was quite beguiling, quite amazing that, that you – and I guess when you're standing up on stage, Vince, that's what you're trying to achieve, isn't it? I kind of get caught in the song. I get – I like to not think beyond the music, but it is a nice feeling when everyone shuts up and gets into the music, that's for sure. But I do my best not, these well, as much as I can, to just invest in the song and uh, wash the song over them the best I can possibly sing it. And that seems, seems to work, yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I take you back a little further? As a young lad coming out from Scotland to Australia, Every day must have felt like summer to start with, coming from Scotland, but ending up at, ending up at Wollongong. What was that like as a 10-year-old? I loved it. I thought it was great. My mum cried a lot because she lost her connections with her friends and family. My dad made the move. He said, it's too grey and it's too smoggy and too cold. Let's get out of here. And off we went to Australia. And fortunately, we landed in Wollongong, which was... God, the beach was a few hundred metres away. Magnificent. I, I loved it. Did you have a lot of friends back in Scotland that you left behind or were you, were you too young at that stage? I was right on 10. Yep. So no. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have too many friends there, just school friends, a few, but no, too young to remember the friends at school, yeah. So you've landed in Wollongong in the mid-60s. You're a 10-year-old lad. Was it like you imagined it would be? Well, it fit all, all, you know, it worked. 
all the dots seemed to fall in place. My dad got us in the soccer team. We were soccer mad. and He said, uh, you've got to join the brass band, Vince. <laughs> Not Scotchman, Scotchman. So I joined the brass band and they put me on trombone, and, which was too heavy actually for a 10-year-old in a big wooden case. So I ended up on corner. And uh, the beach was down the road and all the kids sort of, uh, most of them were really good surfers, and by ten we were we were quite frightened of the ocean because we'd never really been in it. They they called us the white warriors, not the white warriors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when we'd go out surfing, two of us had these twelve foot boards, couple, yeah, going hey, pink by the sun. Did you ever learn to surf? <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit tricky. So was was that was that brass band the catalyst for your music and inspiration to become a musician? I think my dad was the catalyst. He he was a an excellent piano player and he could play most instruments. He was um, in Scotland. He was a kind of locum brass band conductor. And when he came to Australia, they gave him the job of brass band conducting at the, was it Coromel Mine? Yeah, Balgowny Miners uh, Federation Brass Band. And, and he was a frustrated arranger. He had a big band in Scotland of his own, and he actually made recordings. He's a very talented man that the war, four kids, you know, times were tough. He, he never pursued a career full full time in music. Yeah. What did he come out here and do? What, what was his job? Well, he started out as a electrical fitter in the pits, in the mines. And he didn't enjoy, he didn't like going underground much. So he ended up at the public works on the, the wharfs at Wollongong there as a electrical fitter. Mm-hmm. And then he retired at 60 and went to uni. He did 12 years at uni and studying history and wow. Scottish, Irish and European history, yeah. Yeah, wow. So, so obviously, you know, he instilled in you the the sense of hard work and and uh, how you can always achieve no matter where you are in your life. When did you do you remember the moment, Vince, that you thought that you might be able to make a career or, or do something a bit more than just be a, a hobby trumpet player and, and jazz musician? Yeah, it was the very second. You you'll all connect with this one. Uh, it's the very second my dad said to me. Don't bother being a musician, son. You'll end up being a drunk. And you'll have three different wives and you won't have a cracker and your life will be terrible. Don't do it. He said, Become, get a trade. And that was the minute that I wanted, from that day on, just to prove to him and do the opposite to what he said. Because, because, because back in those days, if your dad was down the mines, it was expected that you'd follow him down the mines or as your dad became an electrician, it might have been expected that you'd become the electrician, you'd get that trade. Well, that's right. I, I started off, uh, he, he got me, he connected me with a metallurgist and uh, I worked in his workshop and metallurgy was in the air. But I said to him, no, I want to be a musician. He said, you'd be better off being a golf pro, Vince, than a musician. <laughs> so funny. He was, he was a character. Yeah. But he was supportive, even though even though you went against his advice, he was very supportive, was he? Oh, for sure, yeah. In fact, I remember him uh, 
getting one of my records and then making about 50 tapes for his mates. Wow. And I said, you don't. You don't do that, Dad. You get them to buy the exactly. Tape. <laughs> exactly. Oh no, they will only buy your music, Vince. Uh, but they really like it when I give them a tape. <laughs> cheapskates! What a bunch of cheapskates! Have you ever played golf, by the way? <laughs> I was I was actually quite good as a kid. He took me to all the. I've been playing since I was about six. Yeah. And uh, he, we were hitting balls right up until I was about sixteen. I, I, I got a very good. I started to get a good swing. And yeah. He would take me to classes. He took me to Vonada class one day, oh, yeah. and I, and I learned a lot of, you know. But I didn't want to hit balls for the rest of my life. I'd rather play music. And so, Vince, you you decided to to have a crack at it. Uh, was it was it a difficult scene to break into? Back then, uh, I mean, how strong was the the Australian jazz scene uh, when, when you decided to try and become part of it? Well, the first thing my dad said to me was, you've got to learn all the songs. You've got to learn every standard written. And he instilled in me as a young man that I needed to, to do that. So I got an opportunity to work on a cruise ship with my sister and we would learn all of the just, how, did, how did that come about? How did, how did that come about? Well, she wanted to, uh, she was a beautiful singer. She was incredible. Mm. Um, and she, uh, from quite young, her and I would go into talent contests together. And she'd always win, but she just sort of had me there, I think, as a security blanket. <laughs> but uh, we would she would then she got a job on a cruise ship and i said vince i'm not doing it unless you do it and, oh, all right i'll do it for a while mm. we were on it for about 18 months and it was funnily enough it was a communist chinese cruise ship that was <laughs> trying to crack it in the international market it was bizarre but great fun and consequently we learned all the songs that was the job that was what we we got the real book the original old two blue colored real book and we just went through it and and sang all these songs while we were floating out at seeds on their way to China and our way through Asia. Great fun. So was your, were your audience mostly Chinese or were they, was it an international audience? No Chinese audience, all Western. Wow. And they were mostly pensioners though. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, yeah, you were... They were going to bed about 10 and we'd keep playing till midnight, you know. <laughs> Wow, and so then that that's obviously given you a big leg up and given you confidence because I'd imagine Vince, a lot of that is getting the confidence to be actually perform in front of an audience, and you, you you are like a caged lion there. You don't have anywhere to go, so you've got to perform every night uh, to earn to earn your bucks. So that obviously is giving you a big leg up. Seven week, seven nights a week, four or five sets a night, five on the weekend, Gee. and you had a night off when we were in port. But it was great. I, I mean, I loved it. I loved learning and, and singing those beautiful songs. Uh, and so, from the American songbook. Yeah. yeah. And then after the after the cruise ship, did did you continue to perform with your your sister? I mean, was that a, or did you go your separate ways? She stayed on the ship. I quit after about eighteen months. Right. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to Melbourne and I'm going to start put a band together and I'm going to sing all these gorgeous songs. Yeah. And it turned out I had a friend who had a leg up in uh, 
little sort of nightclub in uh, Melbourne and called the Skydive and two of us got together and we I put the band together and he did all the catering and we ran that for a couple of years, uh, three nights a week. It was terrific. So what what year was that, Vince? Oh, now you got me. God, I was twenty seven. So, gee, that'd be I must early be early eighties. Early eighties, yeah. No, no, this was seventies. Uh, oh, seventies, late seventies then. Late seventies, yeah. Late seventies yeah. when 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 a lot of Australians were falling in love with. Uh, ACDC and uh, and Vander and Young and and that sort of stuff and there you were Vince uh, charting your own course through the through the jazz scene. Who were some of the big names? Who were some of the big names that you were rubbing shoulders with back then? Just to go back, there was a connection there. We got a job at a gig, <clears throat> and ACDC were on that night, <laughs> and we we got the early spot, and they had these brochures on the on the table saying who's your favorite band and who's your worst band and and it was like we were by far the most hated band they'd ever had at the <laughs> club what i don't know the, i don't know that acdc fans are particularly into jazz all that much did you meet any of the boys did you meet any of the boys fence backstage or no 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 they were on late and they would they were like uh you know they're like icons we were just sort of Funnily enough, uh, I think Angus is the same birthday as me, same year. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah. I, I travelled to – back in, down in Melbourne, there was some great – Melbourne was a band city and Sydney was more of an individual career. Uh, a band leader could, you know, like um, Mark Hunter and such. People went off on their uh, individual careers in Sydney, whereas – I loved the Melbourne scene because it was full of great bands like uh, Daddy Cool. And, um, I, but the musicians in Sydney were exceptional. They were very good. My family were all musicians. My brother was a drummer. He was in a band, uh, which was the preface to to a Radio Birdman. He was in oh, that wow. band. Uh, yep. The very just before the Radio Birdman formed, they had a band called. Oh. Of all things, the cunning stunts. <laughs> Who would have thought anyone could get a band like that up and run? <laughs> and then he, um, my older sister was with uh, Brian Cad's band. Oh wow! They, yeah. She was in uh, his band for a few years, and I was still, you know, eking out a living uh, playing jazz at this little club in Melbourne, and and then. Touring Sydney, we would play midweek in, at the basement in Sydney, and mm. then on the weekends we go back to our little venue in Melbourne. See, so you must have had some great, uh, you must have had some great family Christmases when you all came together and started crooning and uh, and, and getting around the musical instruments. What a what a what a wonderful occasion! What wonderful occasions they must have been. I wonder if it happened very often. Well, we're all from a different genre, but we all hung out. It was great. Such a musical family. My dad virtually said to me, here, he, he sort of stick these in your hands for my brother to play the drums, and he'd say to my sister, here, sit by the piano, and you stick that in your mouth, you know, it was the <laughs> trumpet. He just wanted us all to be musicians. Yeah. And we all became musicians, which was great. And, and you recorded your first album in 1981, Watch What Happens, and I think a review from that said, you would be Melbourne's new jazz star. Yeah, that's right. I asked Ralph Rickman to do a um, 
uh, to review it and, and give us some liner notes. And uh, I think it was recorded in 1979, and it took us a while to get it up and running and and uh, released. And, and I went to EMI and asked the, one of the representatives there, who asked him, a guy called uh, John Biden, uh, asked him if he would... Uh, he came to a gig, that's right. He said, Vince, I love your music. I've got a children's record label. Would you like to, uh, we'd like to record you and, and on our label. And I thought, oh, children's label? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, he said, I've got a few jazz artists too that are on my label. And he did, he recorded it. And then he said, you should go to EMI and get them to lease the stuff and just keep making stuff on a leasing system similar to I do. And then they won't complain and try to control you. So I was fortunate I went down that path. Always independent. Never never signed to a record company, ever. No. no. So how much of your money went into that first album? Uh, well, I just got my first mortgage, so I extended the mortgage. Um, <laughs> cost two and a half grand, I think, that first album. Did you have any doubts at that stage, Vince, about, about where it might end up? No, I, I was... You know, keen as mustard, like beyond any fear. And um, the audience reaction to the music was always good. And yeah. we developed a sort of fan base for our venue and, and the music. And um, no, I, I thought, oh, let's do it. You know, just do it. And then you, and then you, went, um, you went overseas. And uh, you probably won't remember this, but I interviewed you back in 1992, Vince, when you were coming to London. Um, uh, and you were you were, you you cracked the European market. You you were, I mean, I remember seeing you in London, and you had a big audience there and uh, around Europe. So that must have been a, a great moment for you. Not not the interview with me, which I'm sure was a great moment, but the, but the but the actual getting a toehold into into the European market. Well, I thought I'd give Europe five years. Yeah. And I understand the tyranny of distance. It's very expensive to take a band there or play internationally in any way, unless you move there. And the record company said, okay, five years, let's do it. And uh, we started really getting good gigs. Like we, we did the Montrose. What a great festival. What a fantastic. I, I've been to it. Before. I lived in Switzerland for a while. I've been to the Montrose Festival. What a great event, Vince. Well, we played the, the Jazz Cafe in London too. And, we broke the record. And then mm. halfway through the night, I said, listen, I don't want you Aussies coming back. No, go home, but don't come back. All right? We came in to play to the Poms, not the Eng not you Aussies. That was probably me. Sorry about that. <laughs> Were you there that night? I probably was, yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. What, what was the – when you went to Europe, though, Vince, what was the club that you really wanted to play that you thought – well, if we're going to make a, a crack of it in Europe, we've got to play this club. What was the club that would have been that club that you wanted to play? Well, there were a few. I, I did want to play Ronnie Scott's, and I did want to play. I did want to play the Quasimodo in Berlin. Hmm. We did the Quasimodo. We played uh, the Jazz Cafe because they paid a bit more money than Ronnie's, and the cost was, as you can imagine, very expensive to travel. Um, 
uh, I, I really did want to play Montreux main stage. I didn't want to be doing all the yeah out of suburb Montreux gigs, and we did. We got the gig with uh, Herbie Hancock and Wow. And Quincy introduced me, and I said to him backstage, you know, Quincy, we'd come here and we'd come and play here for nothing every year if you guys invite us. Yeah. <laughs> and he said to the audience, Vince said, you know, he'd, play, he'd come and play here for nothing. He's having such a good time. He said, and then he said, uh, for that price, Vince, you can come anytime. <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many times did you play? How many times did you play Montreux? I think three times. Yeah. It's such an eclectic lineup, isn't it? I mean, they have, they have. The last time I went, I think Billy Idol was playing there for goodness' sake as one of the, one of the. Played everyone played there, yeah. but the night we did it, I said to uh, the record company, "Well, that's it, five years, guys." And she said, "No, you're just about to crack it." I said, "No, I'm twenty six thousand dollars down." Oh really? <laughs> so I am going. You either pay me twenty six thousand dollars or. I don't come back. So it didn't make you. It didn't. It didn't make you wealthy then. The Europe experiment. Oh no, no. It's just like ten thousand dollars. You might get. Uh, I don't know. You might get a thousand dollars US a gig, and you might do eighteen gigs in the in the whole time. But it costs you twenty thousand dollars to do it. Yeah. Because everybody wants accommodations. Deadly in Europe, as you would know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, incredible fun, and I'm lucky I, I didn't have any children at that stage, so I was uh, able to be a free spirit in that sense. But it got too expensive. But then you, uh, we mentioned. Sorry, Julian, I was just going to say you also cracked uh, America, which I would imagine would have been even tougher because, as as we said at the outset, you know that that's where the the roots of jazz really took hold. What was the way? How did you manage to to crack there, Vince? Well, I think they recognised that I was not, you know, that expression selling sand to the Arabs. Mm. The music had folk, it had soul, and it had jazz in there. The influences were more like a cocktail of Australian. And through the isolation, it was it was an Australian sounding jazz, and they really liked it. The record company, I sold a couple of records to. Uh, uh, in in New York, to a, a company called Intuition, and and it hit. They got it. They hit the charts. I got number fourteen on Cashbox. Mm. Good. Uh, <laughs> but again, uh, they said to me, "You got to come back. You got." That's right. They said, "Vince, we don't want you unless you're going to come here and live." Because oh. we're going to be able to call you up any time and you do the publicity. And I figured, no, I love Australia. Sadly. Yeah, oh, we, met, we, we mentioned Tina Turner at the start, and Tina Turner was involved in some amazing collaborations with people, all sorts of people, throughout her life and her musical career. You yourself have been involved in some pretty good collaborations here in Australia, and a couple of wonderful female voices. I think that Grace Knight from Eurogliders fame, she's got an amazing voice, hasn't she? Well, we did that record together, and oh, it was a really nice record. Coming Spinner, and it's done so well. I think it's all over half a million copies. And yeah, and Grace, the tour was, I think we pulled that off and did a really good job of those beautiful songs from the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a real art, isn't it? To be able to sing, 
you know, music, pop music with the Eurogliders, but to be also able to do that. And Kate Severano is a similar sort of artist as well, isn't she? Yeah. Katie Noonan, there's a few uh, that are really good that can, yeah. and, uh, as I said, jump the fence and play all sorts of music, sing all was, was there anyone that you you wanted to record with but you never got the chance to? Right. Gee, that's a big one. I, I liked... Uh, there's a beautiful singer in New York, Rochelle Farrell. I, I really wanted... If I figured if I could do some recording with her, it would be magical. But she doesn't do duet stuff. And uh, yeah, but has she? But has she? But has she met Vince Jones? That's the question. That is. Oh, she's beautiful. Oh man, what a singer! You know. Yeah. But if I wanted a career in Europe or America, I'll just be clear: you have to live there. Yeah. You can live in Portugal. You can live in Spain. You can live in France, Germany, whatever. But you can't live in Australia. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. And there's and there's no place like home, is there? Well, we're, I love Australia, you know, yeah. I was smitten from the first day I arrived here. It, it also, I think, opened your eyes to uh, the importance of the environment. If, going back to that in, interview I did with you in 1992, Vince, we initially started off talking about, you know, your jazz and how you got into it, but then I think we ended up speaking most of the interview about your passion for the environment and it's something which you've had throughout your life. Yeah, I think, yes, um, certainly uh, where I live, I I used to also live in East Gippsland and I was saddened by the old growth forest that I live pretty much right next to and I thought, I thought the, that it was silly to um, log those massive sort of, you know, some of those mm-hmm. trees, 50 people it took to, to get around to girth and and then cutting these trees down and, and turning them into wood chips, I thought was ridiculous. And mm-hmm. I think even loggers now, they've all realised it was silly. But uh, it... <clears throat> and, uh, and people, we also forget the wildlife, the creatures that depend on these uh, forests. And I saw that firsthand when I lived up in East Gippsland. And uh, my dad always instilled in me to the necessity to... Uh, extend yourself when you can to help you know to help others he was like that by nature he yeah would say, love is the will to extend yourself to help another person and that was instilled in me when i was young so i am always keeping you know uh i, I don't like to see people in an under underdog position so i try to uh support the underdog as much as i can and Vince, you're still you're still living on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, are you off the grid there in, in any way, or uh, I have been. I'm nearly. <laughs> I've been the grid. I will be soon, and I, I can see the the batteries on their way. Yeah. But uh, at the moment, no. I use such a small amount of electricity. Me and the family, we virtually carbon footprint almost neutral down there in my place. So it doesn't make a lot of sense at this stage to spend a lot of money on batteries. Yeah. But we will. And and Vince, do you ever did you ever worry that being outspoken or, or being so open about issues might affect your career? I just hear so many artists who are 
concern they might alienate their fan base or turn people off because they're a little bit political or because they take a stand on something. Was that ever something which which concerned you? It didn't concern me, no, uh, but I agree with them. It will affect you, um, and particularly in the... The options that are offered to you, yes, it can be. They can diminish through your politics, but at the same time. So you've experienced that. Who they really are. Mm, you've experienced I that. So. I think so in Australia. I have not in Europe, no, but in Australia I have. But that doesn't matter. I mean, I am playing a, a music form that isn't mainstream commercial, so I have yeah. to accept. But if I was a commercial artist, I would be. I would speak out, no matter what. If I felt if if I felt that something was important to me to speak out about, I would do it. I wouldn't uh, hold back. But I would also be prepared for um, you know a backlash of sorts. Yeah. And and you've copped that already. You feel you've copped that, or you feel you've been frozen out because you've been outspoken. Uh, I think about twenty five years ago, I, there was an attempt on my life. I had an old Cessna. And it was a 180, an old sort of crop dust the plane, actually, that I bought off. I, I'd started flying when I was quite young, yeah. when it was really cheap back then. So, and then I bought a plane where I thought, I'm buggered if I'm going to drive all these long distances anymore on the road. I'll, I'll find a way of flying there. And, <clears throat> and then I spoke out about the wood chipping industry in uh, East Gippsland, and clearly someone took an offence to it and they sabotaged the aeroplane. It was, no way. Uh, no, the, it was sent to the military, the engine, in sail and they uh, found steel wool, cut up fine particles of it Goodness. in the engine and uh, I'm lucky that the plant, that I noticed that the oil pressure gauge had gone completely off. So yes, you can get up certain people's noses if you're not careful. So did that happen before you took off that you noticed this, or did you notice it when you when you're in the air? I was flying into Moorabbin actually, and I noticed that just as I was about to go on final, the oil pressure gauge was non-existent. Wow! So it happened when I, I left the plane at Malakuta, so I think it may have happened there. But you know, the cops were involved, the CASA were involved. They said, <clears throat> CASA said, "Oh God, you're the first. Normally, it's very rare that that happens, but anyway. Yeah. I'm still here. And are you still flying? I would love it, but I, you know, I'm nearly 70, so I kind of, uh, I let it go for 10 years and I thought, I'll get back in and get back into it, but mm. no, it seems to have slipped away, yeah. But you're still, you're still, you're still touring. You're still touring, though. That obviously still means a lot to you to, to get out there to the fan base and be on the road. Oh, I love playing, yeah. I love the band. The band sounds great. I love writing songs. I'm always writing songs for the band. And Matt and I, or Paul Grabowski and I, or Barney McCall and I, we always write, and we, next thing you know, we're playing it on stage. It's great. So, no, I, I'm still, I think I'll give it another five years, 75, but Graham Bell said, don't do that. And he got to 90, didn't he? He was still yeah. on stage at yeah. 90. Yeah, yeah. Well, Vince, but you uh, know, you mentioned sorry. we mentioned at the start of this chat about you know Tina dying, and it's, it's sort of that demographic that's now you know starting to go. But then 
you know, you look at other performers, or you look at the Rolling Stones and at, at other people like that and, you know, Rod Stewart and they're still touring all around the world and they're still going and it's obviously the love of what they do. You know, I saw the Rolling Stones in 1973 in uh, Sydney. Oh, man, they were good. I really yeah. loved them. Oh, good thing Well, you know, you you look at the influence for the Stones and, you know, from from blues and jazz as well, you know, especially with Keith Richards. And oh, then, you know, you look at Charlie used to go off and play jazz all the time. I can hear Art Blakey and Charlie. I can hear him. Yeah, really? Yeah. The great Art Blakey, the drummer, I can hear him and Charlie, but, and Charlie, uh, what's the sound? Yeah. I, we, I have to ask you because, I, and I know your battery's nearly about to go on us, but you, Miles Davis got you into jazz. Did you ever get to meet him, Vince? You know, I was inches away from it, and Barney McCall said, come meet Miles. Barney knew some of the guys in the band. And he, Mel, Barney's a Melbourne uh, piano player, and he said, come on, Vinny, let's say hello to Miles. And, and uh, I got a bit nervous. I was literally, you know, 10 feet away. And I just got a bit nervous that I, to say, because uh, I'd heard that he can be really uh, prickly. Yes, Thing, you know, Barney's got him laughing his head off. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you regret that? Is that one of your regrets that you never got to sit down and talk to the man who got you into jazz? I don't think we would have had the opportunity to sit down and the great Miles David sit down and talk to me. <laughs> but at least it would have been lovely to say hello to him and say thank you for the music, Miles. Yeah. And Vince, and Vince, what do you think your mum and dad would think now? Oh, my mum was always proud of me. My dad was, he was a hard taskmaster. He'd say, oh, son, you got to practice harder. Oh, you're not sounding that good. You could get better. Come on. But my mum would always be really supportive. Uh, so between the two of them, they were great, yeah. And, and, and if they could magically return now and look at your life now, what would you say to them then? Oh, I would, I would say... Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mum. Yeah. That's the best we can do because they really did help. My mum was so musical, naturally musical. My dad was more the scholar of music. Yeah, the two of them together was great, great influence on me. And did you, Vince, did you adopt your father's parenting approach to your own? Oh, have you got any kids? There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> kids these days, they, they don't want to know about you. Yeah, I think they start to work it out when they're about forty. So you, yeah. so you didn't push them. You didn't push like your father did to you. You didn't push them into learning a musical instrument, or didn't stand over them and tell them they have to learn the trumpet or the piano or anything like that. Well, times have changed. Music is not the picking up a physical instrument anymore. Generally, it's sitting behind a computer. Yeah, and uh, purchasing sounds and piecing them all together, more like a collage. But um, I got the girls, I, we made a promise that we're going to do one day a week singing lessons because I hear them singing all the time, which is good. So I'll, I'll get them uh, breathing and singing, getting a nice sound out of their voices. Yeah. Well, Vince, it's been, it's been so nice chatting with you. Uh, opportunity here for you to give a plug. You got any new music coming up? You got any uh, shows coming up that we can plug on the, 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 the Gazette today? Well, uh, that's right. I've put together, uh, well, myself and the band, we put together an, a 19-piece 
band orchestra mm-hmm. to revisit the coming spinner album and we're touring it at the moment we're going to do the adelaide cabaret festival and we're doing uh, tomorrow night we're playing wyong arts uh, center and we're going to do a national tour of it of course you know a big band you've got to have rocks in your head to put it, try and put a 19 piece. Can you imagine 17 horn players? <laughs> wow, yeah. But, uh, that's yeah. a project. And, and I've got a record that I'm working on right now. I'm going to go and have a listen to it. And I'd love to do some more work with Paul Grabowski. He's a absolute master musician and always yeah. very inspiring. So there's my plug. Well, uh, Vince, you've been very generous with your time. I know you've had to, to drive up onto the road to have a chat with us because, as Julian said, you are almost off-grid there. So we appreciate you sitting on the side of the road having a chat to the Giblets Gazette. Uh, I've found it really interesting and what a fascinating life you've had and still so many great years in front of you. Thank you so much, Vince. Uh, uh, good luck with the future. Good luck with uh, with the new projects and hopefully we can catch up with you again on the Gazette very, very soon. Many more years of touring, Vince. Many, Many more years, years of, touring. of touring. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> get that get that pilot's license again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know about that either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'll just get a chauffeur. Okay. No, that's better. I think, <laughs> I think you've earned it. So thank you for everyone uh, to, for listening to the Giblets Gazette. You can contact us by email at giblettsgazette at outlook.com. You can hear us on Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Music, uh, all the regular podcast places, and, of course, here on uh, the uh, Podbean as well. Thank you to Vince Jones. Thank you to Julian Abbott. Uh, all the best, everyone. We'll be back uh, with another podcast very, very soon. <laughs>